Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for joining us today. Just a quick reminder, really quick, before we get started here, check out our website, apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. It's the hub for apologetics. We have videos, articles, all kinds of cool stuff, uh, so check that out. And as we get ready, ready to discuss our topic and our title today, Finishing the Trio, Dr. Woodward, that's an interesting title, and I can't wait to see what it's about. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, there's the Three Musketeers. I mean, there's all kinds of trios through history. I think I've sung in a trio. I don't know how well we did, but <laughs> the church enjo- enjoyed our presentation of a of a beautiful hymn. So I, I think the trio, of course, that we're referring to in this case is faith, hope, and love. And, of course, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and the greatest of these is love, because love is eternal. Faith and hope are very closely related. They're wonderful. They're awesome. They're the gateway to the joy and reality of the Christian faith. And I think I would like to, since we talked about hope last week, I'd like to finish off the trio quickly and just talk about how hope is is the doorway, you know, because we have hope, but then faith, and especially love, is really the experience of Christ and the experience of apologetic evidence right in our own hearts and lives, and it projects to others as well. So I'm pretty stoked about how faith and love work together and how it's core at the core of apologetics. Uh, and so I think we can proceed. Yeah, I yeah, absolutely. Last week we talked about hope, so I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. Well, let me just talk about, you know, the love of God, which is the fountain, uh, and which really in Ephesians is described as an infinite ocean. Just think of that. Now, we've been maybe to the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean. We've maybe heard about the Indian or uh, Antarctic Ocean. And so oceans are pretty impressive. They're like an average of a mile deep, and you just cover thousands of square miles. So you compute the volume of water in just, let's say, the Atlantic Ocean. It's staggering. That much water now change the these keep the dimensions except expand them a bit and instead of being water it's a description of the content of the love of god because love of god is so tangible is so real it's the most real thing you might think uh, beaming out from god's very core his nature he is righteous let's keep it in balance with righteousness he is holy and so we keep that those two things the righteousness and holiness and the, the, the righteous indignation against rebellion, against the purity, uh, which, which we know down deep is what God calls each of us to. And so when we see Paul come to the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers in that famous uh, kind of mounting the stage of Mars Hill, which you can go to right now, and if you visit the Acropolis on halfway up, you'll see this little outcrop, and it has a big brass sign saying, Mars Hill, this is where... Paul preached to the philosophers. Well, whether that's the exact spot or not, somewhere in that area we know as a fact from Acts 17 that Paul preached to the philosophers, and he did bring them to the accountability. 
the love of God is sort of like then the good news that comes after the fact, the, the warning shot across the bow to those philosophers that, that God has uh, set apart a day of judgment. And he has actually shown, he's given evidence of who that judge is by raising Jesus from the dead. So you might say the coming judgment is that's the that's the uh-oh side of Jesus' coming if you have not repented and if you have not received his grace and forgiveness and kindness and awesome ocean of love. So with that backdrop of his holiness and justice, then comes in sweeping over us, engulfing us, is this virtually infinite, it's not virtually, it is, infinite ocean. And Paul in his closing prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. He's praying for the Ephesian believers that they might grasp with all the saints what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the length. Uh, and, and then to know, he has the, and to know God's love. So it's the, the, the height and depth and breadth and length, left and length, let me get my words correct, uh, the dimensions, the three-dimensional vastness, the immeasurability of this ocean of God's love. And then he says that you might experience it, that you might plunge in, jump into the pool, in this case, jump into the infinite ocean and get thoroughly immersed. And so when we receive Christ, when we open our hearts to him and realize, wow, the evidence shows he really did come. He really did claim in many, many ways to be God. And that, that closes us, down, you know, kind of narrows down our options. Either it was crazy which doesn't seem to fit the evidence at all, or he was lying through his teeth, and that doesn't for two seconds fit the evidence, or he really was who he claimed to be, the God who had stooped down to literally go to the cross in our place. And so once you see the love that is the pivot of eternity found right there in the cross, everything changes. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if, if Christ is God and... Um, is the one who paid for our sins and rose again. If Christ is who he claimed to be, then everything else changes. It is the pivot of reality. And so I want to just spend a few moments thinking and, and, and expanding on the idea of faith and love and how they, how they work. Now, we might say that, that love is like the magnet that attracts us to Christ. So I'd like to spend a moment just thinking of love as God's magnet. And, you know, I don't know about you, uh, you know, Nick, I, I love to play with magnets. Have you ever had some magnets that are so strong you can hardly pull them apart? Yeah, I, I, and, and then when you do the opposite and you try to stick them together when they don't go together. But, oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I would agree with you. I enjoy that, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when, when, you, when you twirl them around 180 and they, they're repelling. So right, it's, like it's a, so strange. Yeah, yeah, and, and I just I thought that was so cool. I mean, you can make things move without touching them. You just put, turn it around 180, and then you just kind of push it. And and before you even touch it, it's moved the other magnet yeah. because it's being it's being repelled. And then, but if you then do the flip, and then you get close to it and smack, they come together. Yeah. And right. so, so God is our ultimate love magnet. He's, he literally stops us in our tracks. Our mouths stop jammering, jabbering. Uh, our our minds get fixed on this, like, what? I mean, he just literally gets the whole world to pause, hit the pause button, and focus on 
I mean, would God actually love me? And without any attraction on my part, without any deserving of that love, I mean, not a slightest hint of, wow, you know, you just deserved it. No, if anything, we deserve the opposite. God draws us by his love, and he brings us into this amazing thing called salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. Those are more or less synonyms from various books of the New Testament. I love eternal life because when, when Jesus speaks to the crowd in John 5, 24, and they're, they're, it's mostly doubters, probably some onlookers, maybe one or two people that were tilted, you know, to, to really seriously consider what he's saying. But he just throws out the challenge, you know, truly, truly, he who hears my word and trusts in him who sent me, in other words, commits their heart and life and trusting the word of God about Jesus, that he died for us and rose again. He who believes uh, and trusts in him who sent me, that person has eternal life. And so, and then he says, and he will not come into judgment, all right? So that solves the problem that Paul is warning the philosophers about. He will not come into judgment, but already has, and he uses present tense, already has eternal life. In other words, he has received this download. The jackpot has come dumping into his, if you think of a guy pulling the crank at a slot machine, this is when the, down, the the jackpot pours into your lap. It just keeps pouring. It fills up the whole building. That <laughs> fills up the earth and it fills up the universe. Because God's infinite love is down poured onto us and we are immersed in this ocean of love at the point of turning to God. Now that's pretty powerful, I think, picture. It's not my idea. It's right there in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, the last about 10 verses. So a homework assignment, you're all assigned to uh, read the latter part, the great closing prayer of that first half of Ephesians, the end of chapter 3. Now, the, the love of God works in tandem with faith. And, of course, faith is, according to Richard Dawkins, the, probably still the reigning guru leader. He's like the pope of uh, the new atheism. Yeah. And, and so Richard Dawkins has said, and we discussed this last week, that uh, belief in God or religious belief in general is like a mental illness. And I, when I heard him say that, he actually wrote that in uh, one of the paragraphs in his first major breakout book, The Selfish Gene. And so that was even before he was known as the, you know, the high priest of, of new atheism. So, I mean, if, if you get down to it, if you go into his God delusion book where he attacks Christian faith, just mercilessly just kind of comes at it with a pickaxe and tries to just clobber everything he can in sight, especially in Christianity. So he says that, you know, the, the idea of faith is just believing when you don't have evidence. Now, now, Nick, let me just pause, hit the pause button for you. What do you, what goes through your mind when you hear somebody or read in a book, uh, Christians, uh, exercise this thing called faith, and faith is belief when you have no evidence. Well, I think it's actually should be turned around. The atheist is the one who is functioning off of blind faith because we see God as our grounding for everything, for morality, for the logic that the atheist is claiming to use and borrowing from Christianity to use. Um, so Christianity functions off of really proof of God, and atheism would be the complete opposite, where they're having blind faith in all of these areas, even argue against God. 
I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think that you, even the opening uh, verses of Luke the Historian, and we want to point people to the to the recorded interview that I did with uh, Dr. Eugenio Biagini at Princeton University, the famed historian, who then transferred, he's been um, for about 20 years now, actually stationed at Cambridge University, not a bad university to be stationed at. And so when uh, right before he left uh, for Cambridge from Princeton, I was able to grab him for about a half a day. And I interviewed him and Dr. Biagini said that, you know, Luke is this extraordinary historian whose work is so powerful, it's almost like an embarrassment to compare modern history with Luke's uh, two-volume Luke-Acts history of Jesus and his uh, ministry and his birth a little bit, but mainly his ministry, his uh, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. If you take Luke and Acts together, you have brilliant history that was thoroughly researched and, according to Luke, based on interviewing eyewitnesses. I mean, you can't read the account of the birth of Christ. We're getting closer and closer to Christmas. Woohoo! And so you can't get closer. Uh, the, the moment you, you read that account of the birth of Christ, I don't think we can get any closer to the real events because at the end of each section it says, and Mary treasured these things in her heart, and Mary stored up these things in her heart. And that's Luke's little signal to us, you know, kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. By the way, I got this from sitting down for hours and interviewing Mary herself. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like, you know, in case you hadn't noticed, this is straight from Mary's mouth and memory. And then meticulous as it was, because she did a, a permanent memorization of those moments. And so I think what we see here is that the faith, as you were saying so nicely, the faith in Christ is faith in a historic reality. I mean, even the Roman historian Tacitus wrote about Jesus, wrote about his crucifixion, his trial and crucifixion, and wrote about even the name of the guy who had consigned him or, or signed off on the death sentence, Pontius Pilate. Check it out. It's in the, his book, Annals of Imperial Rome. So even the secular, and he's not a friend of Christianity, so you can't accuse him, oh, he's just trying to make things look good for the Christians. No, he did not like, he probably didn't know personally that many Christians, but he had just heard people slamming them as they do today. And so we see Tacitus, the secular historian in the Annals of Imperial Rome, describing in a way parallel to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John what's going on in the trial and crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. There's even a hint of the breakout of the news of the resurrection in that same passage, which is really his commentary on the uh, horrible thing when Nero was uh, setting fire to Christians, and he was accusing Christians of being the ultimate bad guys and basically ransacking uh, the, the culture and even the physical structures of Rome for his own crazy, uh, insane uh, pleasures. So that's where it's uh, found. But back to faith. Faith is like a doorway to experience the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the salvation of God, the rescue I'll never forget when I was about seven years old, wandered into a creek bed behind my house in Alton, Illinois, not too far from the Mississippi, just across the river from St. Louis. And when I fell into that creek, I didn't fall. I stumbled into that creek. I kind of slipped, and I was stepping in this quicksand. I thought it was quicksand. It was probably just really slimy mud that was loosened up by days of rain. And I thought I was going to die, and a farmer heard me, came running, and uh, as I was shouting and screaming for help, he reached down, put him his foot on a rock, pulled me. <laughs> you can almost hear the, the mud 
kind of like uh, me being sucked out, yanked out of the mud. And that's what God does to us. By faith, we're pulled out of the yuck of our sin, the mud, the mess of our sin, and we're cleansed and immediately put on the rock, which is Christ. And more than that, in love, in total, crazy, wild, awesome, immeasurable, infinite ocean of love, God adopts us into his family. I mean, blessings and good stuff, I don't think, come stronger than that. But, but then once we, through faith, and faith is, faith is rooted in fact, and that's what we do in apologetics. We try to teach deeper and deeper the levels and the various dimensions of fact that, that support faith. Yes, there is a stepping out onto the ice. You can think of it as like stepping out on a pond, and you don't know 100% you know, it will hold you up. But if, if the reports of friends, and if they have stepped on the ice in the last few minutes, you didn't necessarily see it, but they report and you can trust them, then there's data, there's evidence. And that's what faith is. It sinks its teeth into the available evidence and literally sensing that God is behind it, you step forward. And there may be people even listening to our program who've never made that initial commitment of opening their hearts to Christ as Lord and King of their universe, that he is the Savior, the Rescuer, the one that pulls them out of the slimy mud of their own sin of their whole life <clears throat> up to this moment, realizing, perhaps for the first time, that Christ is the one who was nailed to that cross and all of the judgment and justice and the righteous indignation, what they call in theology, wrath of God was poured on Christ and he absorbed it like a sponge so that if we turn and really kind of uh, align with him and receive him, then all of our sins are paid for. Now, that doesn't mean that we never sin again. It means if we ever sin again, we come immediately to our daddy who's our coach. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes inside and brings the daddy and Jesus inside of us. And the Holy Spirit enables us to walk with Christ more and more in his love. But just think of the, the loving evidence of Christ. Just think of the loving evidence of Christ. I mean, Christ could have given us maybe, you know, one prophecy or two prophecy in the Old Testament. Nick, do you think we have more than one or two prophecies of Christ uh, in the Old Testament? I think we have far more than one or two prophecies. <laughs> Like dozens upon dozens. Yeah, at least. Now, I don't think it's going too far from the doctrine of Christian love to say that God is going kind of like overboard. He's lavishing. That's a word that the New American Standard uses in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. God lavished his love in, in the salvation we have in Christ, but he also lavished it in every other nook and cranny of the universe. God lavished his love in that when, you know, he, he gave us uh, prophecies, he gave us not one or two, but dozens. God lavished his love in that he didn't just have Christ claim once to be God, um, which would have been really powerful, even one clear claim to be the Messiah uh, or to be God, but he loved us. He went overboard. He went the extra 10 or 100 miles, and he, according to my count, literally has given us close to 30 claims, seven different categories at least of claims to be God. So he, again, shows his bounty, his wonderful 
graciousness to the extreme, to the sense of a cascading overflow. Uh, when Christ created the species that we have in the world, and John 1 does indicate, along with Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, that Christ is the creator of the universe, of the earth, of you and me as human beings, uh, but also created the wonderful species. I love my Cocker Spaniels. I'm so happy that God made dogs and specifically allowed breeders to take that capacity and genetically create something such wonderfully floppy long ears and, 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 and furry coat and sweet disposition as our two Cocker Spaniels. But, you know, God made birds from eagles down to amazing hovercraft birds called hummingbirds. God made the whales. God made, of course, the dinosaurs that are now extinct. But think of it. I mean, God made all the beautiful creatures of the sea and the land, uh, those that can fly, even bats, mammalian creatures that can flutter their wings and go out at night and hunt down their, their um, uh, you know, insects uh, for their yummy dinner. But God, you know, I think uh, there's one category. If I, if I was God's... Um, you know, editor, I might, when he said, I'm going to create 800,000 species of beetles, I might say, well, could we allocate maybe 200,000 of those beetle species to, like, uh, mammalian species, and maybe 200,000 of those beetle species to flying bird species? Uh, wink, wink, nod, nod. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, but uh, God had his purposes for creating 800,000 species of beetles, and I'm sure it's a wonderful purpose. But the point is, is that God went way, way overboard in creating the beautiful varieties. And by the way, they do not link up into an evolutionary pattern in the fossil record. As you can confront each major kind of animal or plant, they kind of pop suddenly into the fossil record, which is basically a defeater, a disprover for macroevolution, for Darwinian macroevolution, large-scale evolution. And so, but again, God could have given just a little hint here and there, but he went overboard. He gave us a, a lake. He gave us an ocean. He gave us a vast amount of evidence, even in the living world. Yes. And so consider, I mean, when you, when you consider even the glorious witness we have through 2,000 years of history from St. Augustine uh, through Thomas Aquinas, and we could even list um, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli, and um, all the way through modern writers, I'm thinking of John MacArthur, and except for his um, confusion on evolution, I love Tim Keller's work. And, um, you know, we can name even Steve Meyer, the love of God, that he raised up such titanic figures to witness and to codify the evidence. God has given us an, a tsunami of evidence, which is a pointer to the tsunami behind it all of his love. And I think we can revel in that and thank him nonstop, 24-7. So I'm encouraged. Back to you, Nick. Thank you so much for being the host on this program. Absolutely, and I will second that. I'm encouraged as well. And it's so amazing to tie all this together that we're saved by faith alone. We're saved simply by believing God and trusting mm -hmm. what he has revealed to us, specifically about his son. I mean, it is such an amazing thing that we don't have to be good enough. We don't have to earn our salvation. It is faith alone that saves us. 
Uh, and if anybody has put their faith in Christ, if anyone has questions about the Christian worldview and about Jesus Christ, please send us an email at information at apologetics.org. That is information at apologetics.org. And of course, once again, check out our website, apologetics.org. Uh, we're confident that you will find it helpful, that you will enjoy it, and that you will glean a lot from it. And lastly, if you have not been to the Museum of the Bible in uh, Washington, D.C., Trinity College of Florida is taking a trip there, uh, I believe in October. So go to the Trinity College of Florida website and check that out. It's not too late to sign up. They're taking last minute signups. So if you'd like to check that out as well as the Natural Museum of, of History, uh, get on there and sign up for that. It is not too late. Well, thank you again for listening to The Universe Next Door, and we'll see you back here next week. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida, and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in the universe next door.